Let me pray, because we're going to be talking about same-sex relationships today, and, and there's, there's a great need for us to pray. Let me pray. Uh, Father, I just, I just know all of us have someone or an experience of either same-sex attraction or those who are in a gay relationship or even in our own families where we work, the culture around us. And you have a good word. You have good news. And I just, I pray as we listen to your word, we would feel refreshed. I just, I pray for your help. Pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd manifest the gift of teaching so that there would just be this demonstration of the spirit and not me. And I pray even more, Holy Spirit, that if there is a picture or a word or someone you know in this room who just needs someone else to approach them and pray that you would that you would that we would just love one another i pray this would not feel like like a ted talk like this would feel like we would be we would just love each other and it would be we're a gang symbol if we don't have love for one another and so i don't know what that would look like but i just I pray, Holy Spirit, if you give someone something in this room, even during this message or while we're responding, they'd be faithful. We would just pray for each other. And, and um, yeah, we would just really want to meet with you. So I pray for your help, and I pray you'd give us a, a hunger to, to to have a hope for the reason we believe and to be able to share these things as they are elephants in the room in most of our lives. So just help us in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we, because there has been uh, so much damage, so much pain and frustration uh, with how the gay community has been treated, often feeling ostracized, specifically by the church, mainly, I would argue, mainly because of media. Again, like I said last week, I've never met, I've been a pastor for 15 years, I've never met a Christian in my life who's demonized or who has mocked someone for their same-sex attraction or their relationship, but there are many, and and, um, historically, we have... uh, done a horrible job. It's a repugnant and repulsive for any kind of hatred that has from Christians towards our gay and lesbian neighbors is is not okay. Like it's not okay. It's not Christ-like. So I want to begin by just saying I am sorry. Like we need to we need to say that. Uh, you are a precious child of God. Like I'm sure in this room you just need me to hear, you just, I want you to hear me say, you're a precious child of God. 
you matter to God and you matter to me and you matter to us. And, and I'm sorry for any, any emotion that you have felt that has made you not want to be around Christians. Along these lines, we just need to admit, all of us, we need to admit that this is weighty because on all sides, wherever we land in the church, we all begin with the starting point of love. We just have to admit that, okay? I mean, th this is why this issue is so hard. We need to acknowledge that we know the verse, for God so loved the world, that includes our friends and family members who say that they are gay, and your love, so, so I know this and you need to know this and we need to know this about each other. Your love for him or her is not in question. The question in today's message is what does this love look like? That's why we want teaching on this and that's why we need to because this is why we, we so badly want our friends to treasure Christ and we have this Bible and we want them to know and love the Lord. If they're not Christians, of course we want them. We want them to come from unbelief to believe. That's the main issue. And so it's love. The question again is, what does this look like? You know, do we help gays and lesbians embrace their sexuality and encourage an affirmation as many churches are? Do we just agree to differ and let's be safe and and, you know, like there's a lot of issues in the Bible, like, uh, you know, end times that we disagree on and, and or, or spiritual gifts. Some, you know, don't all agree that they're around. And so maybe we just, let's just say, you know, half of us are affirming, half of us are not affirming, but for the sake of unity, we're all welcome. And in every place of uh, the church, you're welcome to lead in. And, or is it loving to to help same-sex attracted Christians cultivate deeply spiritual friendships where we help them embrace this reality of, of potentially a lifelong celibacy. Like what's the right approach? Okay, how, how do we love with so many competing definitions of where meaning is found? That's what we need to talk about. So the love is not the question. We just have to go, yes, we love. The answer, our answer, sure, church, always has to be the Bible. It always, has, it always has to be our approach has to come not by trying to decide which one is more compassionate based on how we experience compassion, but by observing which approach is grounded in the correct version of the truth, namely God's revealed word. And here's why I begin this way. For many today, they form their approach primarily with their individual experience or the experience of their gay friend or family member. They don't begin their approach with what the Bible says or what the church has held for 2000 years. And when you begin with your experience or the experience of others, what you'll do is you'll inv invariably import your beliefs in your understanding of the scriptures or your interpretation of them, or you'll say the Bible is so far removed culturally that nothing of what the Bible speaks about about this issue is relevant today. So as followers of Jesus, let me just say, we need to begin with God's word, and this is really important, as a good word on sexuality. 
What we believe about what the Bible says about sexuality, homosexuality is a good word. It's to be rejoiced in. So we're gonna begin this morning with what the Bible says. I wanna address, we're gonna go through as many texts as we can, as quick as I can. The second thing I want to address today is mainly, because this will be the elephant in the room, this will be most of the conversations you'll need to navigate around, will be around a modern response, which is uh, really being raised by those within the church that are saying, you know what, the cultural distance is really way too far. We're talking about like apples and oranges. Okay, the Bible in the ancient world did not have any concept of mutual, loving, faithful, same-sex relationships. So what we have today is not the same as then. We need to address that. That's really, really important. Is it the same? And then third, I just, in all my reading as, and as a pastor, I am just... I'm just so burdened that we need to be really good at making this area of people's sexuality a safe place where they can come out and share their same-sex attractions. And so this is where we're going. We have three points today. We're gonna look at what does the Bible say? Is it the same? And how do I respond when a friend opens up? So that's where we're going, okay? So that's your outline, okay? Good. Let me state, I think it's good to be clear on the outset where we land. I believe, this church believes, the traditional view that the Bible places homosexual behavior, no matter the level of commitment or mutual affection, in the category of sexual immorality. To borrow from uh, Wesley Hill's words, who's a woman who, who is choosing to walk in the way of Jesus, but herself struggles with same-sex attraction, says that homosexuality was not God's original creative intention for humanity, and therefore that homosexual practice goes against God's express will for all human beings, especially those who trust in Christ. So that's what we believe. We, we, hold, we, we are traditionally rooted in the Bible. So that's what I'm gonna teach. We also believe, as we said, our identity is not mainly discovered in our attractions or, or how we are, but it's, it's received, meaning it's found in whose we are and what we're for. So we would say to those with same-sex attraction, you are an amazing, beautiful man or woman of God, and you're just, you're more than your sexuality. You're an image bearer of God. And that's so intrinsically, wonderfully, how you are. We, we would never say who you are at the core of your being, your entire person is a sin. We would never say that. When we say what we say, we're not saying your being is a sin. We also believe, again, like I said, the word of God has, what the word of God has for the gay community is a good word. We really believe that. It's a good word. It's a word that can be Rejoice in and bring life into your life because he's good and he's a good God and he's spoken a good word. We believe that. So let's start. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? Here are three questions followers of Jesus are seeking to answer, need to answer in regards to same-sex relationships. Now, if this is a series where I'm equipping you, because this is the, I'm not having, this is not like a TED talk, this is not like publicly, I'm not, this is the Shore Church believers 
our church and I'm equipping you because I want you to get to Christ. Like I want you to show people an, an incredible encounter with Jesus. But the main issue people have with Christians is what they believe about these issues. So my job is to equip you. This is your best beginning point for how you explain your, your beliefs about homosexuality. This is the most biblical place to start. So write these down, okay? Every follower of Jesus seeking to answer what they believe in regards to same-sex relationships needs to ask these three questions. Number one, what is my definition of a godly marriage and human sexuality? Two, how did I get this definition? Including my theology or sociology around this. How did I get this? And number three, does scripture support this definition that I've arrived at? These answers are, are intrinsic to your answer in regards to same-sex relationships. Put another way, if we had no passages on homosexuality, we would know from what the Bible teaches about sex, what it is for, what it says about marriage, being one man and one woman, we would know where God lands. That is beginning with the purpose of sexuality and what marriage is, is the Bible's best explanation to this issue. Because what, of a lot, what a lot of our gay and lesbian neighbors assume is that we think we have marriage, right? We have marriage and we're wanting to restrict this marriage that we're saying you can't have this. We're not saying we don't want you to be able to get married. No, we're saying that same-sex marriage is impossible based upon what marriage and sexuality is. As one writes, it's not that we're trying to disappoint our neighbors. We're saying this is God's good design for human flourishing. Additionally, that's the reason why we're also, and we should say often, that we're, there's not just restrictions on you, there's restrictions on us. The church is as serious on heterosexual sin as we are homosexual sinful expressions outside of God's design for marriage. We preach more on heterosexual sinful behavior than we do homosexual sinful behavior. So we need to begin in Genesis 2, okay? If you're new to the Bible, most of you aren't, but if some of you are, let me just say, Genesis is not a science book. It's not like, you know, uh, it's actually a, a beautiful, I mean, Moses put Pentateuch together to explain Israel's history. So Genesis 1 is actually very poetic in description. Nonetheless, it is inerrant, which means we get our authority on sexuality from it. But just know that. Okay, Genesis 22. So we're going to hit a lot of scriptures now because this is where we're at. We're in point one. What does the Bible say? which you need to know. By the way, if you're gonna navigate this elephant in the room, people are shocked that we don't know what the Bible teaches, right? So you need to know, you need to know where to flip. If they're like, okay, can we do coffee? Because you show me what the Bible, you, you need to go and you need to begin with, I, my view on homosexuality begins with what I believe about sexuality and marriage. And then you go to Genesis, okay? So Genesis two, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make it, I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, took one of his ribs 
and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay, so let me highlight four truths about the nature of marriage that addresses same-sex relationships. Because this is, this is the topic, obviously, of the morning. Number one, the design of complementarity. Notice the way in which the woman was created shows she is the man's divinely designed complement. In verse 20, it says, a helper fit for him or uh, suitable for him. A helper, verse 18 says, fit. The word in Hebrew is actually only used in the entire Old Testament only here. And it's very difficult to translate it into English. It's a compound word made up of, you can see this behind me, K, which means as or like, and neged, which means opposite, against, or in front of. So together, uh, it's the word uh, kegnegdo, which means something like as opposite him or like against him. Okay, remember the King James, if anybody grew up, like help meet. Like no one knows how to translate this Hebrew phrase. Uh, like there's another translation says counterpart. So here's the relevant point on the issue. If it were simply Eve's humanness that made her a helper, the word K would have been just fine. Because the verse would just read, I will make a helper like him. But to make the point that Adam needed not just another human, but a female, he uses neged, meaning because there's such a thing as gender, we have this phenomenon called marriage. And I point this out because many progressive today, progressive in the Christian kind of umbrella, uh, say that the problem Eve rem remedied was aloneness. Like it's not good for man to be alone and not completeness. So their argument is, is this is her being a human rather than gender that made her suitable. They say the example of a man and a man, a man and a woman forming the covenant bond of marriage is the point. So why can't the union of two men or two women demonstrate the same leaving and cleaving? the same you know, intimate sharing of all things. Well, one, because of the words used in Hebrew. Second, number two, there seems to be a design for sexual intimacy, which is this oneness of becoming one flesh, mingling of souls. We talked about that in the sexuality, the, one of the first sermons we did. There's this organically relational design of the opposite sex Union, the sameness of parts in same-sex activity does not allow for the two to become one in the same way. Third, in the same vein, only two persons of the opposite sex can fulfill the procreative purposes of marriage. So marriage's purpose, and there's, there's not, it's not the only one, but certainly in the creation mandate is sort of a union from which if all the plumbing is working properly, children can be conceived. Like one of the reasons it wasn't good for man to be alone was because by himself, he could not reflect the creator's creative designs for the world. Like be fruitful and multiply. 
The multiplication of the plant and animal world has to take place each according to its own types. Likewise, God created the man and the woman deliberately so they could be fruitful and multiply. Four, Jesus himself refers to this text to affirm his definition of marriage. In Matthew 19, when asked, we talked, we preached about this, um, what he believed about divorce, because they were just, you know, you can divorce anyone if the toast is burnt, divorce. Um, Jesus has a strong, he goes back to Genesis 2, and here's what he says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female gender and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus tethers marriage to sexual difference between man and a woman. More than that, okay? You'll see, you know, you'll hear, or I saw a tweet the other day. It was like, what Jesus says about uh homosexuality and then it's just blank because they're like well Jesus never talked about homosexuality to insist that Jesus never said anything about homosexuality is not really accurate because he does address in Mark Mark 7:21 the sin of pornania sexual immorality it's where we get our word pornography from which in the ancient world was a broad way of encompassing every kind of sexual sin outside of God's design for marriage. James Edwards, he's a New Testament scholar, states that pornania, quote, this will be on the screen, can be found in Greek literature with reference to a variety of illicit sexual practices, including adultery, fornication, prostitution, and homosexuality. In the Old Testament, it occurs for any sexual practice outside of marriage between a man and a woman that is prohibited by the Torah. So Jesus didn't have to give a special sermon on homosexuality because all of his listeners understood that same-sex behavior was prohibited in the Pentateuch and reckoned as one of the many expressions of sexual sin, pornania, that was not in line with God's word about God's design and gift for sex and marriage. So that's Genesis 2, okay? We're just gonna, we're part, second part. Leviticus, Leviticus 18.20, the context in Leviticus, so you should write this down. Where do I go next? You go to Leviticus. The context of Leviticus is really important. The whole context is holiness. How do we live in the way of God? How do we live devoted? It was all about holiness. So to borrow from one commentator, from Leviticus 18 to 20, we have a holy people, the priest, with holy clothes in a holy land, Canaan, at a holy place, the tabernacle, using holy utensils and holy objects, celebrating holy days, living by a holy law that they might be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So here's what it says in regards to same-sex expression. Remember, all we're doing is going, what does the Bible say about this? That's all we're doing right now. Uh, Verse, it's on the screen, verse 20. And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife. And so make yourself unclean with her. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech. And so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. You shall not lie with the male as with a woman. It is an abomination and you shall not lie with any animal. And so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. What I want you to see from verse 20 on is there's this increasing and ascending seriousness as the norm of sexuality moves farther out from God's design. 
Now, it's crucial for us to understand after Jesus specifically is that in God's gracious working with his people, there was a moral law in Leviticus 18 to 20, which is true for all people in all places at all times. There was a ceremonial law. These were, these were like laws that were regarded to how you're gonna sacrifice and, and you know, cut the lamb open and, and, and have God's forgiveness and grace and all of that under the old covenant. Then there was a civil law, which informed them as a theocracy and practically helped them be safe. Similar to the Sermon on the Mount, Leviticus 18 to 20, Jesus quotes more than any other Old Testament scripture, but he quotes all of it from the moral law, which is huge in this, which is love your neighbor as yourself, which is, you know, uh, human rights. All of the laws that we still obey today come from Leviticus 18 to 20. And actually a lot of our government was formed on these laws. But here's why this is important. Matthew Vines, he's a leading voice for the progressive view. He says that while the Levitical code forbids homosexuality, it also forbids eating shellfish. Yet, he says, Christians no longer regard eating shellfish as wrong. Right, have you heard that argument? The Bible says you can't eat shellfish and, and we, so why can't we change our minds on homosexuality? The answer is because the moral law is still in force. It has a different role. The Bible says that when you became a Christian, the Holy Spirit has now put the moral law on your, on your heart. We certainly obey the golden rule in human rights and many things the Bible speaks to that we know are right and good. Jesus, again, quoted from this. So when, when Vine refuses to accept the ancient difference or distinction between the ceremonial law, like that could, you could get really sick, and the moral law, He's doing much more than simply giving an alternative interpretation of the Old Testament. He is, quote, this will be on the screen, he's radically revising what biblical authority means. When he says, quote, Christians no longer regard eating shellfish as wrong, and then applies this to homosexuality, though, assuming that Leviticus 19, 18, the golden rule is still in force, he's assuming that it is Christians themselves, not the Bible, who have the right to decide which parts of the Bible are essentially now out of date. That decisively shifts the ultimate authority to define right and wrong onto the individual Christian and away from the biblical text. Okay, Romans one, let's go to the New Testament. Um, we, we, we taught through Romans, that was a long time. Um, we taught on this passage in particular, the context is Jesus is, I mean, Paul is writing and he's just saying, hey, there's no one righteous. There's a new way to be righteous with God. It's in Jesus. And so he's talking about, hey, here's why the pagans need Christ. They've exchanged the glory of God. And here's why the Jews need Christ. You're trusting in your law keeping, not your saved. Like, so he's just, he's moving into why the gospel is so important. And in the beginning, he tells us why we need him because the wrath of God is real. Like it's really real. And it's revealed, you can look at, I'll show you verse 18, then 21, and then a little summary here of what he says in Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. This is, again, what we talked about last week, if you were with us, it's describing what we do in our sin nature. Right? 
The two examples I gave last week are the woman who's fantasizing in her bed and the guy who's looking at a girl on the sidewalk. So if you missed that sermon, you should listen to it. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. He then goes on and he shares more sins, more effects of this fall, but then he goes, but that's not the sermon right now. But then he goes and he closes this, closes that whole section with this sentence. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The next place you'll go is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10. That was our, our base camp in our second sermon. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexual immoral, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he goes, and such were some of you. And here's what Jesus came and did to our old nature. He made us alive. First Timothy 1, 8 to 11, Paul starts this letter saying, hey, Timothy, don't go anywhere because there's some people within the church rising up to teach false doctrines. Stay in Ephesus. The aim of our charge is love. It issues from a pure heart and a good command. And then he says this, he brings in the new purpose of the law. Verse eight, now we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. The law is now shown so that you can go, man, I need Christ. I, I can't make it with, before God, I will see him and I need a savior. I need forgiveness. I need this to come out. For the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, those who strike their fathers and mothers. So that's the fifth commandment. For murderers, sixth commandment, the sexual immoral, men who practice homosexuality, seventh commandment, onto the eighth commandment, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So there's an overview of what the Bible teaches. And sure, there's no positive argument for homosexual expression which can be made from the Bible. Only arguments that texts don't mean what they say to mean and that specific text can be overridden by other considerations. Even non-Christian progressive scholars today like the gay Dutch scholar Pim Pronk after admitting there's a lot of Christians who are eager to see homosexuality supported by the Bible says plainly, quote, in this case, that support is lacking. Now, in his personal view, because he's not a Christian, he doesn't think the Bible should inform our ethics at all. 
but he recognizes that wherever, quote, homosexual intercourse is mentioned in scripture, it is condemned. Dan Ovia, so he, how, how many of you are like, are, it, you read a lot of Christian books? The, Zondervan has uh, put out lots of these two views, 10 views, you know, three views on like different topics. So they did two views on homosexuality, one by Dan Ovia, he's the progressive, and another guy who's traditional, Robert Gagnon. In his book, Two Views, Dan, who's again, arguing for the progressive view, says this, quote, this will be on the screen. Professor Gagnon and I are in substantial agreement that the biblical text that deals specifically with homosexual practice condemn it unconditionally. So that's, that's just the first point. What does the Bible say? That's what it says. So the question is, is it the same? Is it the same? So surely we know those in the Bible times had no category as we do today. Come on, James, everyone knows that. Loving, faithful, lifelong partnerships. Doesn't the Bible only know about, quote, bad same-sex relationships? You know, prostitution and um, pederasty, which is an older man with a younger boy, or exploitation, or slave, slavery, or, or humiliation, or domination. What, what the Bible addresses was the ancient world, which is not anything like we're experiencing, so it doesn't apply. Like, you know, we're talking like apples and oranges. So what can we say in response? Again, remember, I'm teaching to equip. You're going to have such a different listening posture. Like, like we said in the first few sermons, you're, you're loving well. But, but when pressed on this issue, it's important to know how you'll respond. So I'm going to give you four things. Okay, four responses to is it the same today? First, God's sexual ethic is always rooted in creation, not culture. The Bible does not draw its ethic even then or today on the basis of the cultural norm. Its ethic is rather, this is really important, it's always rather based on the created order, namely that it's not fitting for men to do with men what men were designed to do with women. So, so Paul's not arguing against heterosexual excess in these passages. He's arguing people not applying and living by God's design according to the book of Genesis. Second, it's not the same is an argument from silence. Meaning, there is never any explicit or implied reference that somehow Leviticus and Romans 1 or 1 Corinthians that Paul, Moses, any of the authors were speaking of anything other than general homosexual behavior. That is, they had perfectly good, readily used Greek words to describe pederasty, the love of boys. They had pediothoros, which was the corrupter of boys, or pediothero, seducer of boys, 
which the ancient antiquity writings on homosexuality will mention. The point being, there was a wide use of language to describe these and other acts, but Paul uses none of them. Third, we have in these texts that do speak to homosexuality, language of passion and like mutual relationships. So Romans 1 talks about being consumed with passion, which is clearly language of desire and attraction. It's romance. Paul describes homosexuality as men burning with passion for one another. Those words in the Bible, if you look at other words in the Bible, they're not negative. They're not, they're, they're, they're what you would describe as passion. This is mutuality. Paul knew about mutual same-sex relationships and the ancients knew of homosexual orientation. We even have reference, as you, if you can see, to lesbianism in Romans 1. Okay, so this is interesting. Although we have many instances in the writings, and you can go read them, in the ancient world of men with other men and, and it being exploitive, we don't have any such relationships among women. So the reference to lesbianism would be very strange if all Paul had in mind was just dominating, humiliating man-boy relationships. Again, Paul's use of exchange in the critique in Romans 1 of both male and female same-sex relationships is tied to the fact, not that there's power dynamic, but that they violate God's design in creation, okay? Bernadette Bruton, who has written the most important book on lesbianism in antiquity, that's the ancient world, who is herself a lesbian, writes this. She, she, she actually criticized the progressive movement. And here's what she says about Romans. I believe that Paul used the word exchange to indicate that people knew the natural sexual order of the universe and left it behind. I see Paul as condemning all forms of homoeroticism as the unnatural acts of people who had turned away from God. Fourth, and I'm gonna skip this because there's just so much written on it. But in, in the passages we read in both 1 Corinthians 6 and in 1 Timothy, Paul invents a new word for homosexual behavior. He invents this new word and he takes it from Leviticus 18 um, in the ESV, which is translated arson man and koitai bed, men who bed with other men. And he puts this new word together to describe the same thing happening in Leviticus as what was happening in Rome. The new word, in the new word, Paul's saying what I'm referring to is what Leviticus condemns. So in summary, it's not historically accurate to say that the only kinds of homosexual behavior known in the ancient world were these man-boy relationships or exploitive relationships. It's not accurate to say that. This is called, and this is important for us to know because most of your conversations on this one won't be with your non-Christian friends whom you love. It will be with other believers who, because they love, again, we're not disagreeing and have their brother or a friend who has a great gay relationship will, will want to support them. 
But the biggest summary of this argument is the cultural distant argument, which basically says what the Bible says doesn't apply today because the cultural distance is so great. So those in the progressive movement won't just use this in, in lines of homosexuality, but in, in all kinds of ways where the Bible becomes almost a place where they decide, you know what, that was culture, culture, we can change it, change it. They call that um, what Rob Bell has coined. Uh, what does he coin it? Uh, oh, come on, I'm just going off. I don't have my notes here. What does he coin that? Trajectory hermeneutics, which means the Bible set in motion something, but because of culture and change, we have, we have the ability to adapt it culturally. So that line of reasoning would be more compelling if it could be demonstrated that the only kind of homosexuality known in the ancient world was pederasty, victimization, and, and exploitation. So here's what N.T. Wright, who's one of the greatest today in our time, New Testament scholars out of Britain, taught at every uh, university that you would respect and understand, writing on these resource materials. So he's a classicist. He's, he's read first century writings on homosexuality. Here's what he says. As a classicist, I have to say that when I read Pluto's symposium, which is 38, 5 to 370 BC, this is before Christ, or when I read the accounts from the early Roman empire of the practice of homosexuality, then it seems to me they knew just as much about it as we do. In particularly, a point which, it, which is often missed, they knew a great deal about what people today would regard as long-term, reasonably stable relations between two people of the same gender. This is not a modern invention. It's already there in Plato. The idea that in Paul's day, it was always a matter of exploitation of younger men and by older men and whatsoever. Of course, there was plenty of that then as there is today, but it was by no means the only thing they knew. I mean, they knew about the whole range of options there. Every kind of sexual relationship was known in the first century. Like, and I'm talking about like mutual relationship from lesbianism to orgastic, org orgiastic behavior to gender malleable, even some kinds of marriage to lifelong same-sex companionships. And you can study this. We actually have in English these documents in a, it's a 558 page book. So it might take you two years but it's called The Primary Source in Homosexuality in Greece and Rome. But here's what the editor, who's a non-Christian professor, classic professor, Thomas Hubbard says on this. This will also be up there. The coincidence of such severity on the part of moralistic writers with the flagrant and open display of every form of homosexual behavior by Nero and other practitioners indicates a culture in which attitude about the issue increasingly defines one's ideological and moral position. In other words, homosexuality in this era may have ceased to be merely another practice of personal pleasures and began to be viewed as an essential and central category of personal identity exclusive of any antithetical to heterosexual orientation. Can I just add 
because this is also personal. I have family who hold to the progressive view and I love them dearly. I respect them a lot. But it does feel strange that the progressive voices would want us to reach a conclusion that committed sensual lifelong partnerships were completely unknown or untried, say up until like 40 or 50 years ago. Like that would not seem to be, wouldn't that seem to be a little demeaning to suggest that until very recently in the history of the world, there was no examples of warm, loving, caring homosexual relationships. I just, I just think that's just not the strongest place to start, but I understand it. So again, I wanna remind you that I am, I am here as your pastor and wanting to equip you in some of the um, tectonic plates of biblical truth around what we believe in the elephants in the room. And so last week's sermon is so much better for the unbelieving community. And on every front, we need to be incredibly gracious because what's going to begin in your heart at this point and in people's hearts right now is, James, this isn't fair. Like, don't you know all the mental health and the, the pain this position would produce? And like, what about singleness? Like, surely this means the path of obedience for many who experience same-sex attraction is singleness. And I just, I would love, and I will, I'd love to buy you coffee and I'd love to have that conversation because there's so much more I want to listen. There's so much more we need to listen well. But I will say two quick things. Being single in the Bible is not synonymous with living an unfulfilled life. Like it, it just, it's not. Being single does not mean you must live alone, die alone, never hold a hand, never have a hug, never have the touch of another human being. But I understand the pushback, but I just think this, I think we have to at least acknowledge like what we said a few weeks ago in our, in our world's view of sexuality, that it's our world, it's our culture that has underneath the surface equated celibacy as being harmful, as if to be celibate is to be not human. It's just not in the Bible. Christians are not the ones who say sex is everything. It's actually going away. I just saw this on Wednesday, I was working out because obviously a classic. Um, and I was in the gym and I saw, you know, just the, the paper, but like sex is health, okay? Now, if you need to call that number, that's different, but um, <laughs> this is my point, you can change it. This is my point. Every magazine, every conversation, every dating app, every 
every new, like a person who reads sex is health. We're not the ones that say that a life without sex is no life at all. Christians don't believe that. Our world says sex is health. And if your sexual life hasn't worked out, then you haven't worked out. That's not a biblical understanding. It's not the church, but society around us, I would argue that is putting the stakes that high. They make it so hard for youth to even have a relationship because you gotta send me a picture first. That's crazy, it's crap. If life for you without sex is inconceivable, it's possible it's become an idol. Sex and sexual intimacy is not intrinsic with being a fulfilled human being. There was no one who lived more of a full life than Jesus Christ. Paul, it'd be great to do a whole sermon on singleness, but, but I just think we need, we need to acknowledge that, that we're not the ones who say that life without sex is no life at all. We actually think you can have a great life, a, a, a full, meaningful, God, missionary, passionate life. Okay. So that's, what does the Bible say? And is it the same? Number three, there's so much more. And we've posted books and articles. So that, obviously you cannot teach on this in one sermon. So we've posted that and there's, there's so many resources you can talk about. But I, want, I really, as a pastor, I want our church to be a place where people can, that every sexual expression, because we all are disordered in our sexuality, can be talked about. Like it has to be safe. If you have same-sex attractions, to be able to just say that out loud, it's gotta be safe. And so, especially, especially in the church, we, we gotta get good at that. So, how do we respond? Okay, four things. Four things. Number one, how should we respond when a friend opens up? Number one, don't overreact. Okay, don't overreact. Be realistic. Remember, having same sex attraction is not a sin. In our understanding, of the fall, all of us are sexually attracted to things we shouldn't be. All of us have desires that are skewed. Your loved one is experiencing a sin struggle as do us all. Parents, this is so key. Nikki and I have talked about this briefly. If one of our children has same-sex attraction, it won't be because of their upbringing. You need to hear that. There's a lot of great research today, but most of the research that is, I think the best research is saying that we are born with this too. That yes, there's factors in sexuality that when we're sinned against or sexuality, but look, let me say it this way. If our, envi if our environment alone causes us to sin, then there's no need for Jesus. All we would need is another environment. So please listen to me, and I borrow this from one mom and son story. It's not your fault. Perfect parenting does not guarantee perfect children, okay? Look at Adam and Eve. They had like a perfect dad. 
and they still rebelled. So, so, so show the compassion of Jesus who is full of grace and truth, who delights in them because they're a child of God and they're precious and do your best to love. And listen, be realistic. There is not a day in, in oh, let me say this, there is not a week where I am not myself battling with sexual attraction and temptations to sin. And so just remember the truth that Jesus changes people, but in becoming a Christian, you're not coming to an awareness of the flesh. I mean, in becoming a Christian, you're becoming into this new awareness that you have this old flesh and this spirit and they're battling. So you can't just pray the gay away. The Christian life doesn't mean you won't be tempted. It means you have the spirit wrought ability to be holy, even in the midst of temptations. Your goal is not to get them heterosexual. Your goal is not to... Your goal is to just be realistic. This is a sin struggle. Number two, listen well and thank your friend. You need to imagine opening up about same-sex attraction can be the scariest thing you'll ever have to do. As Christopher Jan, who did this himself, describes, he says, imagine keeping something inside for years, if not decades, the layers and stigmas and fears of being judged or ostracized he says, like more than likely, it took them months to get that conversation to confide in you. And they more than likely rehearsed it over and over and over. Tell them how much you appreciate being their friend and being invited to journey with them. Which leads us to the third thing. Number three, be a friend and not an expert. Like, as we said last week, remind them of whose they are. Like, you're, you're just, like, you're Jesus is. He loves you and he's forming you and I'm with you and you're not alone. I don't, and you need to say things like, I don't know all there is to know about this or even if I can be helpful, but I know Jesus and I wanna walk with you to Jesus. So if there's any way I can be a better friend, please let me know because I love you, we're crazy about you and it's okay. And if you're cool with it, can I just pray for you? Can I, can I ask you how's it going? Fourth, ask about faith. This one will be the hardest, but when God gives you an opportunity, you need to do this one. It's good and loving in our age of being offended at everything to press through because offendedness is not proof of the coherence or plausibility of any truth and what the Bible says. In other words, you're asking, are they conforming their sexuality to scripture or conforming scripture to their sexuality? Again, we're talking about a believer here. So if they tell you their faith is anchored, even in the midst of this trial and reality for them, you know your loved one's in a good place. You don't need to be the Bible guy in that moment. And if they share, I'm actually questioning what the Bible's ethics are on everything, or I really believe this is who I am, and they go to identity, you need to go back to identity. You need to go back to creation. Who, you, who are you becoming by what you give yourself to? Your heart needs to be for kind of a re-evangelism 
Remind them of really their call to surrender to submit to Jesus. Be Jesus, be his love. Parents, if this is your son or daughter, one day, you can be sure your children don't doubt your position on homosexuality. They're uncertain whether you fully love them. And you may say, they know that I love them. But I'll tell you, the world and their friends keep telling them that you don't really love them. And you don't really understand or know them. So shower your kids, your friends in love. Be clear, repeatedly say to them how much you love them. Still sign all your emails, love you forever, mom. You'll know the context when you should go to their wedding. You'll know that. That debate is, is, is so contextual. Love them. And then I think we forget to fast and pray. Be patient. Let others see in your own life and by how you live that Jesus is better than anything that this world has to offer. And trust, trust Jesus. Remember the Holy Spirit's job is to do what you can't. I'll close with this story in his book, Holy Sexuality. Christopher Young gives us examples. He says, I know parents who had a gay son. Initially, they struggled with even meeting their son's partner. But after realizing that their son's partner also needed to know Christ, they began inviting him into their home. Some time passed and the parents actually developed a strong relationship with their son's boyfriend. After several years, the two men actually split up, but the parents kept in touch with their son's ex. In an amazing turn of events, their son's ex-partner came to Christ, even expressing that the father was this father, that father, was the only father figure he ever had in this life. He says, you never really know the outcome of loving others in the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I begin with just a reminder that your word is a good word. That our life is not meant to be lived for ourselves. That Christ died so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and was raised. And our sexuality is a part of how you made us, but it's a picture, it's a signpost. And on this really weighty issue today with all the other 
beliefs and false tectonic plates of, of what people are trying to find in you the most. We need your wisdom. But more than that, we, if we don't have love, we're a ganging symbol. I thank you, God, that, I mean, I just think of the religious people kept mocking you because you would eat with same-sex prostitutes and you would eat with tax collectors and you would eat with all these kinds of people. And, and yet you changed people. They were changed. You gave a, you gave a good word. It wasn't just compassion. You loved them and called them to an even better life. And I just, I, I just pray for us. We need your help. And I pray as we respond and we, we think of your death I just, I pray that we would feel like we're meeting with you. And I pray, Holy Spirit, for a manifestation of your spirit in the body. I pray if there's a word that you wanna share to all of us or if there's a specific person that you wanna minister to that we would be brave in whatever you give us. But help us, help us to believe what you say about same sex is a good word. And help us to love really, really well.